Hi, I'm Casey, and right here beside me is Kelsey. We are licensed professional counselors, mothers, entrepreneurs, oh, and besties. We know firsthand what it's like to wake up one day and think, how in the heck did I wind up here? Through our own journeys of self-discovery, we found that joy is something that has to be pursued through our own internal work. Now we are on a mission to help women from all walks of life understand themselves more so they can experience real lasting joy. Join us every Thursday to hear interviews with experts who can point you towards self-discovery and inner joy. Hey, besties. (laughs) Hey, besties. (laughs) We're just talking about being nervous. And I was just, when Kelsey said that, I started laughing inside and then I couldn't help it. Because I think I sound like a a 65-year-old smoker man right now. Sinus infections just won't go away. So, all right. So we have a, a really exciting conversation that I cannot wait to have today with a friend of mine. Her name is Jessica Schroeder. She is the owner and clinical director of JS Therapy Group, LLC, which has three locations located in the Kansas City metro. She is a certified emotionally focused therapist and supervisor and is passionate about helping other therapists develop secure attachments, both professionally and personally. I've known Jessica for a while now, and the type of therapy that she does is something that I never wanted to do. Like never, (laughs) I never wanted to practice that kind of therapy, but I really never wanted to receive that kind of therapy, but I actually did it because I didn't want to, and so I've I've been doing a lot of things that I don't want to do just to see <laughs> how that. Casey came home once, and she was like, "This is so hard and so awful at the same time, but so good." <laughs> and I was like, "You make no sense at all." Oh my gosh! And can I just validate that and normalize that for a minute? Because when I was in my graduate program and I had the class on attachment and emotion, I thought this like I will never do this. Yeah, I cannot wait to get through this class. I will never use this ever. And now it's all I use. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, and yeah. And so you are certified in the hold me tight. Tell me what that is or tell our listeners what that is. Yeah. So I'm a certified emotionally focused therapist and supervisor. So emotionally focused therapy was developed by Sue Johnson back in like the 1990s. And it has really developed since then to be helpful with not just couples, but with individuals and families as well. And it is based on two things. It's based on attachment and emotional regulation, which is really funny because like I wanted nothing to do with either one of those things in grad school. And now I can't get enough of it. Yeah. So two years ago, I started seeing a therapist and her style, she called it, was just very eclectic. It was just one of those things you're like nervous when someone says, well, I have an eclectic style. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes that term is misused and people that don't really have any training <laughs> will use it. So I was a little nervous, but she truly did have an eclectic therapy style, but it was not EFT. And about six months ago, I found a man in Louisville, Kentucky, who also specializes in EFT and the home, he's Hold Me Tight certified and um, started seeing him and oh my gosh, like <laughs> it was awful. I realized after the first couple of sessions that I have a very limited vocabulary when it comes to my feelings. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> And How wonderful 
that he was like able to help you realize that because now you know that yeah you can do something about it yeah it was embarrassing because he would ask me okay well how did how did you feel about that and I'm like I didn't like it yeah but how did you <laughs> feel about it I don't know well how, bad <laughs> yeah how did that feel <laughs> weird you know it was like either fine bad or weird it was one of those three. But it's such a unique type of therapy that is very difficult, I've learned, for people who are over-functioners, but also over-functioners without that emotional foundation. Go ahead. I know. I can read her body language over here. She's, like, stewing. Well, it was interesting watching Casey come home from those EFT uh, sessions. Mm -hmm. But my question to you, Jessica, was why do you feel like you responded the way you did to the EFT class? I would say I responded that way because growing up, emotions were not a big thing in my family. Like we didn't talk about emotion. We didn't have conversations when I was feeling sad or angry or if something bad happened, we didn't talk about it. Like it was, I wouldn't say covered up, but it, there was no invitation to have a conversation about it. So the way I grew up is like, we need to push those emotions down because we don't have time for them. And we don't, we're not going to talk about them right now. So as I got older and I was in grad school, I'm like, I don't need any of this. Like this is uncomfortable, which I couldn't put words to it at that time, right? But now I can. It was really uncomfortable to me. And I didn't want to do it because it felt uncomfortable. So it was really interesting though, because it changed. Now I don't know if you want me to tell you about how how it changed for me. I think it's kind of interesting. Absolutely. I would love to hear that. <laughs> yes. So after I graduated and two years after that I was doing more learning to work with couples because in my graduate program, my internship, I worked with zero couples. I worked in a domestic violence shelter. So I didn't see any couples, obviously. And when I graduated, I opened up my private practice. So I had no experience with couples. So I'm like watching the Gottman trainings on DVD. And then I'm like, well, I want to learn more about EFT too. Like I had it in school. Like, I guess I'll give it a shot. I watched the externship on DVD, which is a four-day training. And just as I listened to what they were saying on the DVD, it resonated with me and my experiences of what I had learned from my supervisor in grad school. Just the things that he said to me resonated with me from that DVD. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the whole thing about human existence. This is like what, this is why I am the way I am because of this. And it was just eye-opening within six months of watching that DVD. I was in San Diego doing the in-person externship with Sue Johnson. So I was like uh, on board ever since then and have never looked back. What did you practice previously? Like what kind of, you worked in a domestic violence shelter. So what kind of mm -hmm. theories or what did you use before EFT? Well, I use a lot of like skill-based things. Okay. How can you change your behaviors? Or I don't yeah. know if it was really CBT because we didn't get a lot of CBT as an American family therapist. We get a lot of systems theory, okay. but it was not emotion, like yeah. very limited emotion. So yeah. then you learned about EFT and you were like, I'm, I'm going to run with this. Yes, because it just, you know, when something resonates in your heart yeah. and you feel it, that's how I felt. 
it just resonated in my heart and there was no reason for me to to look away from it because it just resonated so deeply. Oftentimes it said therapists become therapists to kind of <laughs> figure out what happened, you know, in their own experiences. I felt like I got a huge answer. One of the things that I've experienced over the last year, I don't really know how to explain this, but because of all of the work that I have done to try to understand and, and answer that question that you were just referring to, like how how did this how, how did I how did I get here? How did I end up here? Not necessarily physically, but just emotionally. Like how did I get to this place? How did I end up with the people that are in my life? How did I end up in this career? What was it that led me here? I've actually experienced quite a bit of grief in that whole process, realizing that I didn't have the language to express my emotions for ever. My family growing up was very similar to what you described. Like we didn't, not one time in my whole entire life do I remember anyone saying, well, how are you feeling? Oh my gosh. Never, yeah. never. She yeah. was the first person that's ever asked me. Like, what, is that, what does that feel like for you? You remember? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I also was thinking about, he made a comment one time and it really hurt my feelings, but I, I know it wasn't coming from a place of like, um, she, she said, you are so emotional. Like, and I just don't know how to handle it. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because I, I did grow up, maybe not like my whole family, but my mom was super, like, she listened to my emotions and I have big emotions. My mom has always told me that, right? <laughs> Casey did not know what to do with them. And then also, too, like, you didn't know when I was asking you about how that made you feel. Yeah. It, the only way that I could figure out how to describe it was that I didn't have the space in my body to handle hers. Um, oh, my gosh. This makes so much sense. Yeah. And, and not only emotions, but that was just what caused me to realize it. I didn't have the space for a lot of things. Like I didn't have the space for joy. I didn't have the space for like just moments like with, with my kids where normally, and let's just say in the past for me, my normal, I would have just been annoyed with what they were doing because I didn't have the space to feel something different. And when Kelsey came along and was like really asking, well, what do you need? And how does that feel for you? And I'm just like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> it was almost mm -hmm. like learning a new language. Oh, absolutely. I, yes, can totally resonate with that and learning really what is this emotion? What is this feeling in my body and what is it trying to tell mm -hmm. me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and then also what it led me to realize was that for my entire adult life, I was choosing romantic partners, like uh, relationships, not just relationships. I mean, friendships, too, but I will I'll stick with the romantic relationships just to make it easier. But I was choosing people that kept me in that comfort zone. So like if I would have went on a date with someone that right off the bat would have been like, oh, how did you feel about that? I probably would have ran away. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Uh -huh. it, you said it perfectly, right? We choose people that keep us in our comfort zone and we choose people that fall into the patterns that we grew up in, even if they're unhealthy, right. we still choose them because it's comfortable for our emotions. Mm -hmm. 
it doesn't feel awkward because if it felt awkward, we wouldn't want to turn turn towards it. Just like I didn't want to turn towards emotions in grad school, right? Because it mm-hmm. felt awkward. You know yep. how people say that women date their father or marry their father? Yeah. <laughs> I remember thinking, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like, I mean, if you've met my dad, he <laughs> can't even say it with a straight face. Like, I mean, he's just as gruff as he can be. It doesn't say a whole lot. He just hobbles around and smokes cigarettes. and <laughs> He sounds wonderful. Yeah, and just bitches about everything he, you know, he possibly. And I'm just thinking, okay, I've been married twice. Neither one of them were my father. But once I started understanding this language of emotion a little bit more and doing a little bit more work on attachment, I realized that was actually not true. I did marry my dad twice because Uh the, I don't know if you want to call it the attachment style or the love language or just the type of communication, but my dad was always, he showed love in two ways. It was quality time He would take me and do things like we were always together when I was little. But most importantly, when he did something that upset me, every single time he bought me stuff. Like he would would bring me things. And now we never once talked about how he felt. We never addressed conflict. We never Mm -hmm. came to a resolution. There was no words ever associated with this relationship. Still to this day, there are no words associated with the relationship. But when he brought me in a gift, I knew that he felt bad. Oh, wow. And in my past relationships, it was the exact same way. There was no communication. There was no conflict resolution. Yeah, there's quality time because, you know, I picked people that were very uh, attached and codependent in a lot of ways. So that that was there. But the gifts, like it was just, and it wasn't like gifts just because it was like gifts to apologize and go ahead. I I am not that way. I'm not giving. She you never a gift. buys me anything when she does something bad, no. and I'm like, look, I deserve a present. <laughs> no, because it changes the meaning, right? Like, if I'm going to buy flowers, I want to buy flowers just because. I don't want to buy flowers because I'm sorry. And my love language is words of affirmation. So you know, here we are <laughs> trying to figure out. I want you to resolve it verbally so you can give me words of affirmation and tell me how much you love me. <laughs> And what I think is really interesting about love languages is like, what is it really tapping into, whether it's quality time or gifts or words of affirmation? Like, what is it really tapping into? It's really tapping into the emotions and the attachment. The The love language is just the road, right? But the attachment is the destination. So when someone bought you a gift, Casey, it was like, okay. We're we're okay. Like we are good, right? Yeah. And Kelsey, when someone like was talking to you, like that was how you felt connected and safe again. Yeah. So I read something or maybe heard something somewhere that said every single day you should show up and show your kids every single love language. And like that's mm. the best thing that you can do for your children. I don't know where I heard that, but it makes so much sense because then they're not focused on one their yeah. their entire life. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. really smart. Yeah. So mine has changed. Mm -hmm. It's opposite. And Kelsey and I had a lot of conversations in the beginning of our relationship. And that was a big concern for me because acts of service is the only way that I've ever known anyone to show love. 
she just refuses to do it. <laughs> we had a lot of conversations. I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. Like, I just, this is, this is weird. But now I can say that I feel like I need all of them, but my preferred are different than they used to be. The one mm -hmm. that I used to say, absolutely not, I don't want love in that way, is now the one that I need the most. Which is which one? Physical touch. Oh. Well, also because so I'd never been touched. Like, we, we didn't hug. No one hugged. No one, you know, there was no... There was nothing. And so that was not a way that I never paired that up with with love. So I find that so interesting that you say that because when I think of attachment and I think of secure attachment, I think of emotional proximity and physical proximity. And I mean, what happens when we touch someone or what happens when we're held in a in a hug by somebody, right? Like Touch is so important to helping the brain and nervous system calm down, right? It's like when someone holds you or you're close to someone that you feel emotionally safe with, that just helps your own brain to regulate and it helps your nervous system to regulate and to calm down and feel safer again. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. That, I mean, it's I find it strikingly interesting to me, like, oh my gosh, how about that? <laughs> Yeah. It's, right. Well, and if, if I were to tell you this, it might even make more sense to you. I don't know. So like with my previous relationships, I never, I never even slept in the same bed with them. And so there was never hmm. like speaking of that. I know. <laughs> How much time do we have today? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's bad, man. I'll schedule an appointment. Um, <laughs> no, like laying it, like the act of physically laying in a bed with somebody caused me so much anxiety mm -hmm. that it was impossible for me to go to sleep. Like I could not wow. relax. And it's just interesting now because how that has changed. Also how I know how messed up that is. And that's like, duh, big red flag. Like something's not right. When we were friends, I think I remember saying like, you, you don't sleep with your partner. And she's like, no. And I was like, how do you feel connected? Like, how do you feel that connection with somebody and like that? But we talk a lot about emotional safety, but I guess we've never really touched on physical safety. Mm -hmm. Well, I always used to think it was like, well, they snore or I'm a light sleeper, which, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, all those things are true, but it didn't calm me. And I don't know if it was them. Probably not. It was probably me. Like, I just didn't have the space for it. Like I was talking about earlier, I didn't have space for it. I hadn't done the work. I hadn't, I hadn't learned enough about myself to be able to start healing from whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So it kind of sounds like it was both. Yeah, it was probably a little bit of both. Yeah, they did snore and mm -hmm. there was something about your nervous system that didn't feel it could be completely safe mm -hmm. asleep next to somebody like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel different now, thankfully. It's it's much different. But I was talking earlier about how I've been trying to do things that I, my body or my head or something is fighting against, you know, that resistance, especially if I think it's something that I need to do, but I don't want to. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something a lot of us, that's why we stay stuck is, you know, we keep doing and keep choosing people and relationships that are familiar, but also not healthy. And so like, I wonder, what do you tell a client or someone who's coming in for therapy, when they keep finding themselves in these patterns where, you know, it's like one relationship after another narcissist, narcissist, you know, or unhealthy domestic violence, like, what is it that you tell them? about their attachment style or about their emotions or their behaviors that continue to keep them in this cycle? I think that for me, when I'm with someone that comes into my office presenting with that history, I want to explore like what is it that they grew up with? What were the relationships when they were growing up? I want to explore also what meaning of themselves they have created because of that. Or even what meaning of the world and other people in the world have they created because of those relationships with their primary caregivers? Because I think that definitely comes into play as adults. Because if deep down inside, I feel like I'm not worth any better than this, well, why would I seek anything better than a unhealthy relationship that I'm stuck in? But if I have a view of myself that is more positive, that says, I'm good enough, I'm worthy, then I might be able to leave that relationship and find something that is better. And these meanings that we have all come from our childhood. So if I'm working with a client that is getting caught up in unhealthy relationships time and time and time again, I want to explore all that. And I want to bring it to light. So it's not like for me, it's so experiential. It is not about talking through like a cognitive way. It is, I want the client to experience those things in my therapy room. And I'm going to be the secure attachment figure for them until I can kind of pass it off to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Would you like to share any or? I don't have any like... They're not formed in your brain? No, no. Just like dangling there? Yeah, give me just a few minutes. (laughs) It's it's a really complex topic. I mean, how do you talk about attachment? You know, it's very complex. There's a lot that goes into it. It's very deep, Mm -hmm. so deep. Mm -hmm. Like it is like the core of our existence, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever find that people resist that, like looking into the past and understanding themselves now? What do you do with that resistance? Do you just keep circling back? Like, let's say they're in domestic violence relationship, right? And they keep going back, but then they come back to you. Tell me what you do with that. Well, so I don't work with a lot of DV anymore. And I didn't use EFT when I was working at the DV shelter either. But I think it's still exploring. It's exploring like what was happening for you on the inside that you went back. Because there is something, you know, and I think that one thing we all could get behind, right? Because if someone keeps going back to an abusive relationship and I'm able to help them see, I keep going back because I don't want to feel alone. Well, you can get behind that. I mean, I can, I can resonate with that, right? Like, I don't want to feel alone either. And I could even see how not wanting to feel alone would make me go back to an abusive relationship because 
the abusive relationship in my heart is better than being alone. So are you constantly looking at like the core fear kind of like? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Fear is a huge part of attachment. It's huge, right? Because it's, I mean, fear of abandonment, fear of rejection. And for our brain and nervous system, that's the most scariest thing. You know, it's just what it's wired in. Yeah, I found that looking at fear of abandonment for me that that's a huge trigger i mean and and it's not just like a blanket trigger it 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 shows up in so many ways you know it shows up like in in conflict if someone for arguing and they're like fuck you i'm done and they're like like my whole world flips a switch like the whole thing and you want to get crazy casey or just like completely I don't give a shit Casey that's what you're gonna get when you tell me you're done wow Um, I've heard Mm -hmm. it my whole life you know like not just from relationships but like from family members I'm done with you I'm done with you and it's just oh like you I can't it's not a road that I want to go down and it just feels like one day someone's gonna tell me that and I'm gonna be like bye and like, mm-hmm. there's no looking back from it. It's like a, a wound that's been picked and picked and picked and picked and picked. And then eventually it's it's just not going to hurt anymore. It's like, yeah. okay, go on. So I think that things like that show up for people in ways and they may not even realize that it's coming from a place from childhood or a place, you know, they, they may not see those connections. They may not see how all of that is in alignment. And I think once you know that and you've done some work, whether it's through therapy or just on your own, you can communicate that to the people that you love and that care about you. And so that they know that that's not something that feels good. Well, and I feel like when we are able to recognize that that's where our coping strategy, so to speak, is coming from. And then we can communicate that to our partner or to our friend or to our another family member. They can have empathy for us too, because I'm sure on some level, they know what that feels like as well. Right. And they don't want us to hurt in that way. But so often we don't communicate the right things. Mm-hmm. Right. We communicate things like I'm pissed at you or you really made me mad this time. We don't say things like I am so scared that I'm going to be left all alone. Mm-hmm. We, we're not trained to say that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So our partners or whoever, they get mixed messages, then they don't get a clear message. Right. That's where the emotional work comes in is recognizing how do I communicate how I feel in an emotional way that is not only going to be more effective, but also softer. You know, mm-hmm. it's coming across as like, how can someone be defensive toward you and put up walls toward you when you're telling them how scared you are? Absolutely. You know? yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Saying yep. I'm so pissed, that's an immediate defense. Absolutely. But saying yep. I'm so scared. So different. Yep. Yeah. yeah, man, this is... What, go ahead. What do you think my, like, core fear is? I don't think it's, like, feeling like I'm going to be abandoned. I think it's something else. I, I think, think it's insignificant. I think yours is somewhat of a variation of fear of failure. Fear of failure in 
in different ways, like fear, failure of not being a good mother, fear, failure of yeah. Oh, yeah. all of that, those emotional things, like those emotional focus things I think she's afraid of failing at. And like, because, you know, you get really defensive if I'm, let's say I say something, I just want you to give me attention. Okay, let's just say I say, I say that. And then, so like, Kelsey's really quick to say, what is what I'm doing not enough? Like, is it not good enough? You know, and I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. That's not <laughs> what I'm telling you. You know, so it, I think in her head, like, oh, I'm not living up to your expectations. I'm not, I'm disappointing you. Oh, like that. It's more about like that level of disappointment and. Which is a huge, a, a huge core for me because that is. My mom never really had to discipline me. Except for tell me she was disappointed in me. Ooh, holy moly. Right? Oh, like, my goodness. Like, didn't have to spank me. Didn't have to, nothing. Like, I knew by her tone and I knew by her face. And I would be like, are you mad at me? And she'd be like, well, I'm kind of disappointed. And so that that's huge. Um, just talking about that. I'm having all these epiphanies in my head. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Attachment, like, ding, 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 ding. See, I had to get my ass beat. Like, I mean, I was always in trouble. Like, always just something. <laughs> No one ever told me they were disappointed in me because they probably always were. I don't know. Jessica, what is your, like, root fear? Like, do you have one that really stands out? Oh, my goodness. I probably have a few. Let me think about that. I think for me, I definitely have a fear of failure. And I think if I take that even a couple layers deeper, right, if I if I fail, people are going to think that I am bad. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if people think I'm bad, then who's going to want to be with me? Right. Like who's, who's going to be my friend? Who's going to be my partner? Like I'm going to be all alone. I mean, like it goes so deep. I, and I will tell you anytime in my group practice, one of the therapists or anyone else says that they are going to move on. I have, a bodily reaction to that. So yes, there is something about people leaving me that then affects me in the professional area. Yeah. Like my body, like I feel all the pins and needles and my stomach is turning and like, it is, it's like a wash from my head all the way down to my toe. So fear of failure is big. I'm not going to be good enough. is also really big for me. That is something that is a phrase that goes through my mind quite often that I'm always trying to to deal with and trying to manage and keep it in its place. Do you think that all of those fears manifest themselves in over-functioning? Are you trying to work hard, to be the best, to do all of those things, to avoid? I think it could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it definitely could. 100%. Because if I overfunction, if I do it all and I do it all well, well then look at me. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm great. Nobody's going to leave me now. Exactly. Or, or just taking like numbers, let's say like clinicians, you started off with like five and every time one of them left, you were like, oh no, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Not only financially, but, but like physically you could feel it in your body. So then, okay, well, if I have 20, I won't really care if that one leaves, mm-hmm. right? Like that achievement, mm-hmm. like that goal. Yeah, the things that we tell ourselves so that we will continue to to work more and do more and and it's kind of crazy. And you know, sometimes I wish I could remember what those messages were and what I told myself as a little kid. 
Like what, what are the things that you, and I would do anything to find like my old journals and see what Mm. I was like telling myself back then to, to motivate myself because I always would joke to my mom, my dad of like how lucky they were because yeah, I mean, I was very mischievous and I was always into something, you know, whatever. But I mean that I really had no rules. I never had expectations with grades. No one ever told me, hey, you need you need to be um, you need to graduate with honors. You need to be all A's. You need to do this. Nobody like nobody in my family. They didn't even ask. Um, oh, my God. No, like there was no nobody asked about that stuff. And but I did it because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering sometimes, like, was I doing that to try to seek out their approval was I doing that so that they would be like, oh, good job, like to notice me? I'm not sure, maybe partially, but I know that I did those things back then because I wanted to. It mm-hmm. made me feel good. And so I, I still have to believe that there's parts of me now in my adulthood that I enjoy doing well. Like I like it. So I don't know. It's just it's just kind of weird to think back when you're little and that inner voice, like what was it saying back then compared to what is it saying now? Oh gosh, absolutely. And how I wish I would have had someone to help me with that inner voice, like to steer it in the right direction instead of not having someone to talk with me about that. And it totally getting steered in the wrong direction, mm-hmm. you know? So I have these negative views of self instead of having more positive views of self and more self-confidence and self-esteem and, mm-hmm. you know, courage. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage to take risks these days and just having somebody to be able to help me work through those thoughts mm-hmm. that I was developing as a child. Yeah. That'd be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I wish therapy was something that more kids did back when, when I was younger. I think that that's good just to, to hear things and process them externally as opposed to just in your own head. Like even saying them out loud or writing them down on paper makes such a difference. Well, if you don't, I think that's where anxiety and depression start at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's one or the other. And I'm sure for you, it was anxiety. I've just never considered myself to have anxiety or to be an anxious person. But I think that I think so. I th- See, mine was depression. I had friends that would never listen to my emotions or when I said, like, something traumatic happened to me and, like, you know, they were asking me questions about it and I would tell them how I felt and they'd be like, well, you're being overdramatic. And so then I would sit at home and sulk about that, right? Like, and my mom was like, you know, you should be validated on your emotions. And so I had that at home, but I did not have that at school. So I sat with those emotions and mm-hmm. and it turned into – I'm not a very, I wouldn't consider myself a depressed person, but those dark ages, right, was depression. It was not anxiety for me. Well, and and for me, the depression part is very scary. And I've gotten better in the last couple of years with Kelsey because I mean, I don't, you're not a depressed person, but everyone like you can kind of hit highs and lows. And the emotional part that used to really scare me about her I think that it was really coming from the memories that I had watching my mom struggle with depression. She never really got out of it. And so like whenever mm-hmm. she would start to feel sad and, you know, very emotional, it would really make me nervous and uncomfortable because I was thinking, what if this doesn't stop? Like, what if she feels like scary. this forever? 
Like, Mm -hmm. and I lived it, you know, like my whole entire life. And so it's, it's really, it makes me really anxious. That is always like when I get really sad, Casey is very anxious. Oh oh my God. Like it, Mm -hmm. It sends me into a spiral because I like I want to I want to fix it I want to help her I want to because like I don't want it to last forever and in my head I'm like oh my gosh she's gonna be in the bed for the rest of her life <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm gonna be all alone yeah <laughs> and I've told Casey that I just need to cry or I just need to be sad like just let me be sad like mm-hmm. let me cry and it's actually funny because not funny it's not funny. Do you remember in the house when you were crying, you were going through a lot of stuff. And at this point, I was just your friend. You were crying and Mamie, her oldest daughter, come out and she was trying to hide the fact that she was crying. And I was like, no, Mm. like, it's okay. She can tell you're sad. She can tell that something's going on, like, be vulnerable. And she just looked at Casey was like, what did you just tell me? I'm like, well, she's, you know, it probably makes her more anxious not knowing if you're okay or not. That's a really good point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But in my mind, I had always associated that intense sadness with this lifelong thing. Like it was never, I'm just going to be sad for a little while. And when I feel better, I'll be better. It's like, well, I'm just going to be sad forever. Mm. So that's, that was always really scary. I I think I've, I'm better with it now. I still want to fix it. (laughs) when she's when she's sad but I'm definitely better with like it's not a reflection of me it's not anything I'm doing wrong it's nothing it's not gonna be forever it's going to pass it's like I have to really tell myself all these things so that (laughs) she makes me really nervous but like you're soothing in that moment like you're just trying to soothe yourself so that you can soothe your friend yeah right yeah this was so helpful and so insightful, and you've got Kelsey's wheels spinning, I can tell, over here. Well, we've never even talked about this, so you got a front row seat mm-hmm. to, like, we ne- we didn't plan this. There was nothing about this. This was total authenticity. Yeah, yeah. Aw, this is wonderful. I'm so, thank you. I'm honored to be able to be with the two of you on your first run. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for being on, and we just have valued all of your amazing expertise. Jessica, it was a pleasure meeting you. I'm glad that we're both from Wisconsin. We hit it off before we even started the podcast. So I already felt closer to you, right? There we go. There we go. Big old hug. Thank you for having me. Okay, everyone. Well, thanks so much. And we will talk to you next week, besties. See ya. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and would like to hear more from us, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast so we can keep making great content like this. 